Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Please turn with me now to Acts. We're going to be reading chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, from, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man had acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsippus, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, 
Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word to us. Let me pray again briefly, and uh, we'll dive into uh, this word. Father, thank you again for today. Bless us now as we read this word, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I asked you which is the best phone plan in terms of coverage and service, would you be able to answer? If I asked you which is the best school to send my kids to, would you have an answer for that? Or importantly, if I asked you which out of Cha Time, Gong Cha and Hera Tea make the best pearl milk tea, would you have an answer? Uh, There are some questions in life that are just really important to know the answer to and to have worked out, or at least they feel very important to us. And so if I asked you those questions that are important to you, well, lots of us would have spent a bit of time reflecting on those answers. We would have spent time working it out because it matters. The same goes for theological questions, questions about the Bible and the Christian faith. So if I asked you, what is the meaning of the cross, guys, PowerPoint? Everything's, all the gremlins have come out today. There we go. So if I asked you, what is the meaning of the cross? Uh, Why did Jesus have to die? Would you have an answer? If I asked you, why is it important that the Bible is God's authoritative and infallible word? Would you have an answer? I hope you do have answers to those questions. Now, I raise all of that because I do think there is actually one theological question that I'm not so sure that we know how to answer that well. And here's the question. What does the ascension of Jesus mean for the church and for Jesus himself? Now, the ascension of Jesus, by that we mean we're talking about the bodily ascending or rising and being taken into heaven after he was raised from the dead. So how would you answer that question? See, the events at the end of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts, you know, this event that gets repeated here, what does it mean? What is its importance for the church and for Jesus himself? Would you have answers to those two halves of the question? Now, if you're not sure, that's actually okay, because that's the question we're answering today in our passage Now, as you can see on the outline, there are three main sections to this opening chapter. There's a a short introduction, a recap of Jesus ascending to heaven, and then the appointment of a replacement apostle. So let's begin with a a brief introduction to the book itself. Always good to get a brief introduction before we begin a series in a book. Uh, So let's think about this, uh, the book of Acts, as well as focus in on verses 1 to 3. Now, the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. From what we can tell, Luke was a fellow believer. He traveled with the Apostle Paul, and he was a doctor. Uh, He was also the author of the Gospel of Luke, and with the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts combined, Luke wrote around 27% of the New Testament, which is actually a little bit more than Paul. So he is the author of the most of the New Testament. The Book of Acts is sort of like a part two of the Gospel of Luke. And for some reason, our Bible editors always put John in between Luke and Acts. It just would have been nice if they were put together. 
Anyway, you'll notice in your Bibles that the book is often called the Acts of the Apostles. And I think while this is sort of true, uh, it's actually more foundationally true to say that the book is about the Acts of Jesus, guiding and protecting and leading his fledgling church. In the reading before we read out the, verses, the first few verses of the Gospel of Luke to kind of set the scene, you can see that Luke was writing to a man named Theophilus. And while I won't tease out all the details of that introduction, I think there are two key things in those verses from the Gospel of Luke that help us as we start the book of Acts. First, in the Gospel of Luke, he mentions that there were many eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So there were already, at the time that Luke was writing, many who were reporting and testifying to what they saw. Luke saw this as an opportunity to write it all down. He writes that he was putting together an orderly account for Theophilus. Uh, as someone who was following Paul around when Luke compiled these stories, it's, he probably did so with the authority and the endorsement of Paul. He wasn't making any of this up. But the gospel wasn't just a biography for biography's sake. The key to Luke's writing is right there in chapter 1, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty there means confidence and assurance. Luke wanted Theophilus to be confident about his faith, about the things that he had been previously, that had been previously taught to him. And so when Luke introduces the book of Acts, the first thing he does is remind Theophilus of, about what he had previously written. Everything I wrote there to help you to be certain about Jesus, all of that carries over to here as well. Remember, Theophilus, we started the last book looking at all that Jesus had done, all that he did until the day he was taken away. Remember here in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering by many proofs, and he did that over a period of 40 days. Now, what an interesting choice of words. Jesus presented himself alive by many proofs. Jesus gave evidence that he was raised from the dead, evidence that the disciples could engage with, evidence that if anyone reading Luke was curious, they could actually go and check out for themselves. And so right off the bat, before we actually dive further into this book, I want to take a moment to speak to you here today if, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure, I want to offer you an invitation an invitation that no other religion offers. And the invitation is this. Test us. Test the claims that Jesus makes, the claims that the New Testament makes. Every other religion is about ideas and philosophy, and usually it's revolving around one person who receives some divine revelation that cannot be verified or interrogated. But Christianity is uniquely different. It offers proofs that can be engaged with, arguments that can be wrestled with. So I invite you, if you haven't gained certainty about the Christian faith, if you're uncertain about Jesus, come and find out more. Luke says that Jesus offered proof of his resurrection. Come and see it for yourself. 
Now, the Gospel of Luke was written to give a man certainty about who Jesus is, what he claimed, and what happened in his life, death, and resurrection. The book of Acts was written to give this same man certainty and confidence about what Jesus continued to do with his young church. And right here at the start, Jesus is saying that, uh, Luke is saying that Jesus is alive and proved it. And so before we move on, we have to ask, do we believe that? Do you have certainty of that? Now Luke expands the story a little more. After Jesus uh, was raised, he hung around the disciples for 40 days. And in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 11, Luke tells us what happened when Jesus ascended. And importantly, he tells us what the ascension means for the church and for Jesus. And so to be clear, right, let me summarize in a nutshell what Luke is saying here. The ascension of Jesus means three things, okay? If you're going to nod off to sleep in a second, pay attention right here. Number one, the disciples must wait for the Holy Spirit. Number two, their witnessing will be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And number three, the ascension means that Jesus is promoted to the highest position in the universe. All right, so let's tease all of those out. The first meaning, that the disciples need to wait for the Holy Spirit. And again, that comes in chapter, four verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Uh, read with me again. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, so Jesus here is with the disciples, and he tells them before they head out to Jerusalem and into the other nations, they are to wait. They are to wait for what he promised them way back in his final meal that he had with them before his crucifixion. Remember, on the night that he was betrayed in that final meal, he promised them that he would go away. He would eventually go home to God, to be with God, his Father in heaven. And when he went away, he would then send the Holy Spirit to be with them. And he reminds them of the words of John the Baptist all the way at the start of the gospel. John the Baptist said, you come to me, but all I can do is make you wet. The one who comes after me is going to set you on fire. Not literally, but with the Holy Spirit. Now, Before Jesus can tell them why it's important to receive the Holy Spirit, the disciples change the subject. Before Jesus can actually explain again who the Holy Spirit is and what he's about to do, the disciples change the subject. They've got another big question on their mind. You see in verse 6, they've got a question about the kingdom. Now that Jesus is raised to life again, when is he going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Given all the expectations they had from the Old Testament about the Messiah, I guess this, this is a natural question to ask. But Jesus' response shows how narrow their vision is. Jesus reminds them in verse 7 that that part of the plan belongs to the Father. Uh, the timing of God's kingdom, when Jesus returns, his second coming, that is up to the Father. Jesus is going to submit to those plans. But getting back on track in verse 8, Jesus says, Here's why you need the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's the second reason why the ascension of Jesus is so important. When Jesus goes, 
He will send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the, what we believe to be the third person of the Trinity, the God's Spirit will come and dwell in every single Christian, in every believer, and here in the apostles. And His work will be to empower His disciples. The Spirit will give them courage and words to speak. The Spirit will be at work in them to recall the words of Jesus. The Spirit will give them power to heal and perform the miracles that we're going to see in the book of Acts. But importantly, as Jesus says here in verse 8, the Spirit will help them be my witnesses. They'll begin at home in Jerusalem and move further and further out until their testimony of Jesus reaches the ends of the world. Now, the apostles here, I think, are a special category of witness. So when we talk about ourselves witnessing, uh, we are pointing people to the teaching of the apostles and to the gospel of Jesus. But when they witness, they were doing something a little bit more specific than we do. They were recalling their personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus and all that meant. And the, gospel are the, the Gospels are the account of all those who saw these things actually happen. And again, there's certainty to all of this. So the question comes back to us again. Do you believe what happens in these pages is actually what happened in history? Do you believe the witness, the eyewitness of these apostles? You think about it for a second. The apostles were told to go to the ends of the earth. Where are we today? Brisbane, Australia. It's just about as far away from everything as you can possibly get. Practically, the other side of the world to Jerusalem. I did a Google search last night. Jerusalem is 40,000 kilometers away from here. No, no, the circumference on the earth is 40,000 kilometers. We are, I think, 18,000 kilometers away from Jerusalem. We are practically on the other side of the earth, the ends of the earth. There's something really special about reading the book of Acts today. I can only imagine what it would have been like for the early church to have received this book and to have read it for the first time, so small in number, so heavily persecuted. And to hear these words must have been a big what if a big hope they could possibly, possibly they couldn't even quite imagine. But here we are, the ends of the earth, hearing the testimony of the apostles' witness. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. And with that, Jesus says goodbye for now. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, the ascension, this is the ascension of Jesus. So let me go back to that opening question. What does the ascension mean for Jesus? Here's what this means. This is Jesus' promotion to a new status, a new job, and it's big, big news. If you stayed up late last night, you would have seen some big news come in for Australia. We have a new prime minister, Anthony Albanese. Imagine for a second being his wife or his children. What an honor it must be for your father to be promoted to Prime Minister of Australia. But for Jesus, this is even bigger. This, his promotion is a fulfillment of the Daniel 7 vision. 
the one like a son of man, riding on the clouds of heaven, coming before the throne of God and receiving all authority in heaven and on earth. A little bit more powerful than the Prime Minister of Australia. Why is the ascension so important for Jesus? Because it's the moment he is crowned the most supreme being in the entire universe. God gives him everything. From his position in heaven on the throne, he can then pour out his Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a second, and continue to guide and direct his church. The ascension of Jesus is therefore the climax of his ministry. And it will become the climactic point in the apostles' teaching from here on. You'll notice as you go through the book of Acts that they don't actually often, as often refer to the resurrection. And actually, they'll sometimes refer to the death. But more often than not, they'll actually refer to the ascension, this picture of Jesus at the right hand of God. It is for them the biggest part of the gospel. But uh, this picture of the right hand of Jesus at, of, uh, at the hand of God is their focus and their joy. We'll hear it in Peter's preaching in chapter 2 next week. We'll, he- we'll see it in the healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3, in Peter's message to the Jewish council in chapter 5. And it's the vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God that finally gets Stephen martyred in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7. How important is the ascension for Jesus? It means everything to him, and it was everything to the apostles. Is it everything to us? For now, the scene ends with the disciples staring off into the sky for what seems like a long time, so long that two angels need to actually appear and go, oi, 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 come on, get get going. Hurry along, get back to it, fellas. Don't worry. The way you saw Jesus leave, he'll definitely return that way too. So they make their way back to Jerusalem, and now in verse 12 to 26, uh, we've got this very long section. You know, Luke had a papyrus, which is just this basically big, long sheet of um, paper, essentially, uh, and he didn't have that much space to record all of this on, and yet he spends a very long time detailing what happens a vote uh, for a new apostle and some words about Judas. And it kind of makes you wonder, well, first as you read it, I'm betting that many people didn't find this exactly the most stimulating or inspirational read, right? You didn't wake up this morning going, I can't wait to learn how they elected a 12th apostle. Yeah, because that's going to get me through the week. And I'm going to go through every single detail here as well. But there are a couple of things to note. First is this, in verses 15 to 20... Uh, Peter is evidently the leader of the group. And he stands up to acknowledge the fact that when they started this journey with Jesus all those years ago, they started with 12 disciples. And now there are only 11 of the original. Judas Iscariot was one of them. I love how there's another Judas, but they have to, just to be clear, it's Judas the son of James. Like, can you imagine being that Judas going, hey, Judas? No, 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 the other Judas. Okay. All right. uh, so, Judas uh, betrayed Jesus, and Luke details a fair bit about his gruesome death as well as the fact that Judas' betrayal was expected in the Psalms. Now, what are we to make of this lengthy detail? Here's a pro tip. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you see just a lot of attention paid to, a set, to something, right, you, that's the Bible author flagging for you that this is something really important. 
So what is Luke trying to say? Wrestle with this, and in the context of the book of Acts, I think this is a frank acknowledgement of the fact that things went wrong with Judas. The book of Acts does not shy away from the warts and the ugliness of the early church. Sin and failure are acknowledged. In chapter 5, we'll see Ananias and Sapphira try to cheat the church. Luke points out some bickering widows in chapter 6. And he'll be frank about Peter's reluctance to heed God's call in chapter 10. And here, Peter stands up, leader of the apostles. Come chapter 10, he's like, do I really want to listen to Jesus? And he'll even point out Paul's impatience and fierce doubt about John Mark in chapter 15. If, If there's one thing that this encourages us for us today, it's that the church also needs to be transparent about our failures. It's true that old saying, The best of men are men at best. I'm not perfect. Ben's not perfect. Our elders and leaders are not perfect. And so I hope and pray that our church and our leaders will set an example of facing up to sin and acknowledging our failures. There's another example setting moment in this passage as well, and that's the final part of the passage. So let me read it again, a bit more lengthy here. Follow with me in, verse, in your Bibles, verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, as well as, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said... You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So there are 11 apostles left behind, but they cannot remain just 11 there must be 12. Why? Remember when Jesus began his ministry, he selected 12 men as his disciples. 12 reflecting the number of people of God. When Jesus selected 12, he was echoing the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. And so in selecting 12 disciples, he was saying that with this new 12, a new people of God would arise. So there must be 12 apostles to keep reflecting this truth. Now, in cricket, there is a position uh, known as the 12th man. But his job is basically just to carry the drinks and bring out the snacks to the players on the field. Is this Matthias's job? (laughs) Not quite, right? This is not the job of the 12th apostle. The 12th must be someone who also saw the resurrection with the others. The job of the apostles was to be a witness to Jesus, to be one of those who said that they saw Jesus raised to life. It's not a job just for anyone. It's a really important job as well. But then how do they go about choosing the 12th man? Two men are put forward. They have a think about it and pray, and these two men seem like good candidates. Joseph called Basabas and Matthias. Now, how do they split the, between the two? How do they choose? 
Verse 26, they cast lots, which we're not exactly sure how they did that, but casting lots is essentially a coin flip, right? Heads, Joseph wins. Tails, Matthias wins. Exactly what method they used again, we're not sure. But again, it's, it really is a sort of game of chance. But with Jesus sitting on the throne, nothing is left to chance. Because what we see, see what they did just, be, just before they cast the lots in verse 24. They prayed. And they prayed specifically, show which one of these two you have chosen. The lot fell then on Matthias. He takes on the mantle of the twelfth apostle. It's interesting that there's a lot of detail given here about the appointment of Matthias. And then for the rest of the book of Acts in the New Testament, we don't hear about Matthias at all. We do know from church history that he eventually started a publishing company called Matthias Media. (laughs) Yeah, that is a joke. Thank you for laughing. Um, we We don't know much more about Matthias. But again, here is another example for the church that the church sets for us today. A big decision needed to be made, so they prayed to their Lord, and Jesus responded. He guided the decision. He chose Matthias. Jesus, who was seated at his father's side, delights to hear the prayers of his people and answer them and guide them. Christ's involvement in the election of Matthias should also reassure us. It tells us that Jesus is not uninterested nor uninvolved in his church. He continues to lead and to guide his church from heaven through his spirit. So I think when we read this passage, it's actually a relatively simple passage. It's a brief recap, an introduction, and then you see two main things. You see Jesus promoted to heaven at the right hand of his Father, giving instructions to his apostles to wait for the Holy Spirit to arrive. And then we see the apostles together praying and seeking guidance for a replacement 12th man. Again, it's almost like when we read this book and, and we read this first chapter, we're kind of going, get into the action already. It's not the most exciting stuff. The calm of the days before a big storm are not as exciting as the storm itself. And yet, the ascension of Jesus is crucial in setting important fundamentals for the church. Two crucial things that must happen. And they're two crucial big lessons for our church here today. Let me highlight them briefly again and then apply them to our church life. The first big lesson is this. Ministry is always and only done in the power of the sent Holy Spirit. And so no matter how urgent the task, the disciples, disciples of Jesus cannot begin their work without the Holy Spirit. The apostles were told to stay put until the Spirit came. In everything the church does, it is to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot and do not serve independent of God's Spirit to empower our work. The second big lesson is this, which is deeply related, is that the apostles prayed for guidance to the ascended Lord Jesus when they were appointing their replacement 12th apostle. This is the pattern for the church as well. The pattern is meant to be one of prayerfulness, seeking guidance from Jesus who has ascended to the Father's side. So number one, the Holy Spirit's empowerment, and number two, prayerfulness and seeking Jesus' guidance for direction. Jesus gave his apostles a clear mission 
right? Make disciples of all the nations, witnessed his, to his death and resurrection in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're familiar with that, right? It's the mission of our church to make disciples and grow disciples, immerse people in understanding and embracing the loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How will the apostles and indeed the church do this work? The answer is simple. They can only do it with the power of the Spirit, and they will do it prayerfully, constantly seeking the guidance of their risen and ascended Lord. Now, if we have read Acts 1 correctly, then there are some very, very big challenges for our church today. And the biggest challenge is this. How are we expressing our reliance on the Spirit? Are we in danger of relying on our own strength and power? The past few months in our church, we have been gearing up. We are planning to plant a church. Now, this planning began all the way back in 2019. For those of us who are new with us over the last few years, uh, we've had some space issues everywhere in our church. You can see this church mostly full. Prior to the pandemic, there were at least another 30 more people here regularly. Right? No live stream, you have to come to church. So we were packing out our space in the first service. We moved to the, the second service, to the hall over there, and we were packing out that space. Our kids' church in the first service was packing out the space with 60 kids downstairs and all the teachers as well. Right? Everyone said, start a third service. And we were like, no, we will die. <laughs> so we thought with all the options available to us, we believed that a church plant would serve our wider needs. Right? Let's not just replicate what we've got. Let's plant a church so we can reach out to our non-Asian, Aussie, Caucasian, and who else, other ethnicities. So after a two-year pause for the pandemic, we're now back to seriously thinking it through again. A few months ago, you may have heard that we had a group called Reach Australia come in and to give our church an assessment. It's a really helpful feedback that they saw to help us think through the plant. We've had plenty of discussions with other pastors and leaders on how to think through planting. Ben and I have been equipped in thinking these things, these things through unlike any other time before. And yet, with all these business principles, with the planning and the strategizing, all of these things, good things, we might be in danger of thinking that we've got this. That in our strength alone, we can do this. We're a great church. We've got wonderful relationships with each other here. And we've got two of the best preachers in St. Lucia. <laughs> or maybe just Ryan's bro. Okay. All we need to do is just replicate what we're doing in another location and boom, the western suburbs aren't going to know what hit them. We really need to laugh at ourselves if we ever get to thinking like that. We may not go that far in our thinking, but I wonder, I wonder what our lack of prayerfulness tells us. It will be the Spirit who will empower this work. The Spirit who will take what we've learned and been equipped with and all that we've sacrificed and all the desire to serve, and the Spirit will use that to do the work. But again, we've got to push a bit deeper because we don't just express our reliance on the Spirit by just mentally ticking it off. Right? We have a meeting, 
check. Are we relying on the Spirit? All right, let's, let's keep going. Right? We express our reliance on the Spirit in deep prayer. Prayer to the ascended Lord Jesus. Essential to the church uh, life of our church. That's one of our core values, but how much do we actually value that? How much is that dear to us? Do we really believe that Jesus will answer? Jesus has shown in these opening pages that he is very responsive to the prayers of his people. As I said before, we're in the middle of church planting, and if you haven't heard, we've got a couple of big hurdles that we're not exactly sure how to overcome. The biggest hurdle itself is actually working out what model of church we're trying to run with and how to best partner with non-Asian churches. Right? Usually when you plan a church, you, you just do it yourself. We're actually trying to think through how can we be in partnership, proper partnership with other churches to do this. And then we were told that we're actually breaking new ground. No one has really done this. And so because of that, it's like, what do we do? Ben has essentially been at the helm of this. And at the moment, it feels like the key decision on what the church plant looks like is actually just all on his shoulders. Good luck, Ben. Now, Ben's a fit guy. He's got strong shoulders. But there are bigger shoulders that this decision can rest upon. And I'm, of course, not talking about myself, but the Lord Jesus. Now, as I've been reflecting on this passage I've been rebuked greatly that we haven't called our church together to pray for this process, especially to pray for guidance, guidance that the Lord Jesus loves to give his church, guidance and wisdom on how to proceed. We must come together to pray regularly for this plant to happen. For this plant to succeed, Jesus must approve of it. He must be at work in it. The Holy Spirit must empower people to serve in it. And all the glory must go to God the Father. We cannot trust in our own strength and power alone to get this done. We cannot trust Ben's or my skill and gifts alone. But we trust the one who is deeply vested and interested in the growth of his church. And so we need his help, and he delights to give it. Now, normally at this point, of the, at the end of the sermon, I would, as a preacher, close, lead us in a closing prayer. But given the content of what we just heard, I think it's appropriate that we all pray. So friends, if you're not a believer here, or you're new with us here today, uh, don't feel obliged to pray. Um, have a chat with the person next to you. Actually, have a chat about what proof Jesus gave about his resurrection. But if you are a believer, please turn to the person next to you and pray. Pray that God would guide us in our church plant. Pray that he would grant wisdom on the path forward. And that he would continue to raise up the right people to serve our churches. And then after a brief time, I'll close us off. So why don't you turn to the person now? And pray. Heavenly Father, help us believe Jesus has been raised and has ascended to your right hand. Help us to cherish and rejoice deeply and profoundly at the promotion of our Lord Jesus to the highest place 
the name above all names. May that picture grip our hearts and fill it with joy. Lord Jesus, guide us and give us wisdom as we seek to honour you and grow your kingdom with a church plant. We've got our timing, our plan, our thoughts, but none of this will occur without your leading. So grant us wisdom to know how to do this and delight us in how you will lead us. For we pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen.